Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is March the 21st, 2020. This is episode 2624, and in some ways, times have gotten really tough. Though I think that even in the middle of all this, your great-grandparents, if you told them how tough times were right now, might say to you, you know... Let me tell you a little thing about a thing called the Spanish Flu and the Great Depression and the Great War and World War II. They might tell you that. You might realize that even with tough times, we got it pretty good. You can have it better. You can have it better if you're prepared. I've, I've been on a 12-year mission now, and, I, and, and, and if COVID doesn't take me out this year, and I don't think that it's going to, uh, I promise you we'll be doing at least another 12 years. And My, my plan is to maybe... Uh, Maybe to finish up with about 30 years of this. That's, that's about where I think I see myself in a kind of semi-retirement phase, uh, 30 years of podcasting. That gives you guys, well, what is that, uh, 18 more years of me running my mouth and trying to help you out and try to encourage you to live that better life. And uh, so today we're going to talk a little bit about COVID because how can we not talk about the number one thing that everybody's talking about? But I keep telling you, don't do COVID TV all day, all the time, 24-7, 365 glued. Ah, we're all going to die. Because the reality is for the majority of people, you're going to be just fine. You're going to be just fine. Right now, especially unless you live right in downtown New York City or something like that, your odds of uh, dying in the next week... Uh, of a car wreck are probably higher than you ending up in the hospital, let alone dying from COVID. That's just by the numbers. And it's important every once in a while. That doesn't mean it's not a problem. It doesn't mean it's not something to be concerned about. It doesn't mean you shouldn't be taking precautions. But it does just, like, pull back. Like, there's a lot of ways people die every day. And we, we don't sit around worrying about them constantly. Because if we did, we'd end up killing ourselves with stress. So while we're going to talk about this treatment, and I'm going to talk again about the things that you can do for yourself from a nutritional supplement standpoint, and these are just things, again, I can't prescribe, I can't give dosage, I can't do anything like that. I'm not a doctor. I don't pretend to be a doctor, uh, not even on TV. Um, these are just things I've made a decision for my family, and I feel the number one thing we can do with these two areas right now is educate so that people can make informed decisions for themselves, and if they do end up with serious uh, complications from COVID, they know to demand, and I said, yes, demand this option from their doctor. Unless your doctor can say, listen, the reason you can't have this is because if you take this, it can kill you because, insert legitimate reason here, because I didn't see a piece of paper from the FDA is not an acceptable answer. If that's the answer you get, you need a new doctor. I'll actually be playing for you on the air today a guy that said goodbye to his wife and his family. Because he believed he was going to be dead the next day. And then said, I want this treatment. And he did not take no for an answer. And I'll let you, I'll let you hear his story for yourself. But it, I'll just say that it has a great ending. We'll get to that and more in just a minute. Before we do, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one today is, who is it? It's ready-made resources, all the resources you need for your prepping, ready-made and ready to go. You'll find it all at the website of the company that does what it says and says what it does, readymaderesources.com. Just note, a lot of stuff is really, 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 really delayed right now. The time to prep was yesterday. The next best time is today, and ready-made resources can still help you with that. Uh, this is also all going to end. It's going to come to an end. And um, I, I'm, 
I am not one of these people spouting a bunch of conspiracy theories now, but I am telling you that I see a lot of things being used to take liberty uh, that, that stick around after this is over, and in many ways indirectly. And liberty is going to be something we're going to have to fight harder for than ever before once we're done fighting this, this, this virus. Well, a group of people that have been fighting for liberty in a real way for a very long time are the Free State Project up in New Hampshire. And uh, once this is all over, you might want to think about relocating, and maybe if you've been in a really heavily, densely populated area, maybe a nice little country home in New Hampshire might be worth taking a look at, and hanging out with some of the coolest people that really love liberty that you'll ever find as part of the Free State Project. For more more information on that, go to fsp.org forward slash join, and I'll just say I've been supporting Free State Project for over 10 years. I have keynoted uh, twice for them. I have spoke at three of their events. Assuming it doesn't get canceled due to the COVID uh, stuff, I will be up there again. I don't live in New Hampshire. I'm not growing in New Hampshire. But they are the organization I've probably given the most outside support to. And there's a reason, because I love liberty, too. And I look for liberty in our lifetime, and that's their motto. All right, with that, let's go ahead and uh, dig on to, into this. I want to just let you all know again, I do have a membership program. You get a bunch of discounts. It helps support the show. That's all I'll say about it today. You can learn more at the survivalpodcast.com and go to members. But right now, it's a $50 a year program. You can get it for $25 a year. Uh, is a renewal or a new member. If you're an existing member, you can't renew early. It's not me. It's the way the system works. It's a software limitation. I'm not that guy that's like AT&T that says only new customers. It's just That's just the way that it is. But $25 a year... Uh, for life, discount code is 25 bucks, 25BUCKS. So the number two, the number five, BUCKS. That's all I'll say about that. Let's go on and get into this. Um, again, I want to talk to you about growing your own food today. And uh, we're going to talk about why we still need to be thinking that way even in the middle of a crisis. Yes, the best time to have, to have you know, mastered this skill and started to grow your own food would have been before this. But I, I want to, again, talk to you about chloroquine how it's being used by doctors in two distinctively different ways and why it's important to understand that. And I am going to stick up a bit for the medical establishment and for the state, which both are kind of a stretch for me to do, but there is some legitimate reason here why why what is being said and pushed back on is. There's some illegitimate and some legitimate. So let's just start off with something I don't think people really understand here. There's two ways this anti-malarial drug is being used by doctors, and it's really two different time frames. Some doctors are being very proactive, especially if they have access to this medication. They are giving it to their patients along with supplemental zinc before their symptoms become severe. When they do that, what the malarial drug, again, chloroquine, and it's actually hydroxychloroquine is the version they're using, which has a lot less side effects than the other uh, form of the medication. They're giving it with zinc because chloroquine is what's known as a zinc ionophore. And if you just think about your cell wall, it's, 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 it's designed to keep things in and keep things out and only let certain things pass through. Well, the COVID um, virus attaches to what's called an ACE receptor on your cell, and it injects a little piece of itself, and then it hijacks what's known as your mRNA or your messenger RNA. This is the, the, stu the stuff that actually connects to your DNA and makes new copies. Well, it hijacks it, and it makes copies of itself, and it's a long, drawn-out process, but that's what it does. If, you're, if you have zinc in your cell, and this is well-known science. If you have zinc inside the cell, then that replication process is just 
shut down to a degree. It doesn't stop it cold, but it slows it down and almost shuts it down depending on how much zinc you get in your cells. Okay? So some doctors are using it to do that. It probably does something to also directly fight the virus as well. We're not sure. The other way doctors are using it is with other drugs in more advanced cases is kind of, well, we can try this and see if this, it'll keep this guy from dying. As you're about to hear, sometimes that works. That works. And, I mean, people that they really didn't think there's anything they could do for, it works. Um, as, again, as you're about to hear. That is a totally different way that this drug's being used. It's being, in that case, instead of being given orally, it's being given IV. It's being given with other drugs, and it's being given at higher doses that require significant medical uh, monitoring because it's being used at higher doses. And those are two very different things, and we need to understand that so that we don't continue to get caught up in all this misinformation. Because I'll put a link in the the, uh, the podcast notes for you guys today um, of a story circulating right now that is being circulated and pushed by people that are pretty much deranged individuals in the media that just can't stand for anything to look good for Donald Trump. And I'm not a Trump apologist. I'm not a huge Trump fan. But I absolutely know this stuff works because doctors say it works, and just because the president says it works doesn't mean it stops working. So, this piece comes out, and some tool and his wife in Arizona go out and buy um, aquarium chemicals that, that, that contain chloroquine. And they're not made for humans to use. And with no idea what they're doing, and they're not even sick, they take a bunch of it. The guy takes what would have been a several days dosage if he had known how to do the math right and kills himself. And the media reports this is man killed by taking drug recommended by President Trump. People that are doing that are sick. They're sick in the head and you need to ignore this. You need to actually listen to doctors like the multiple doctors who have used this stuff and said that it works. And again, you need to keep in mind that it's being used two different ways. So in that article, at least the original version of that article, they said, chloroquine should only be used in an ICU setting under medical management. If you're giving a large amount of it by IV in a heroic effort to save a life of someone who is about to die, yeah. But this medication, one more freaking time, one more freaking time, has been used by Millions and millions and millions of people for long-duration prevention of malaria. And it is still used by lots of people for uh, treatment of rheumatoid, arthri rheumatoid arthritis and lupus. There's just not a lot of it out there because it's only used for a few patients, or like a, a, a small minority of patients with RA and lupus tend to respond well to it. So they need theirs. I mean, some of these people with rheumatoid arthritis, I mean, it, it is, it is life changing for them and they can't function without it. So we can't have a run on it. So one of the things that they're doing right now is they're pushing back on this a little bit because they're waiting for these millions and millions of doses to be available to where it can be used more. And I think what you're going to see, and this is not what I'm recommending, this is what I think you're going to see. I try to play the weatherman here. 
Right now, you're going to see trials, which are actually doctors just using it and recording the data so that it can be a trial. But it's going to mostly go to people that are in advanced states of the disease that are not fighting it well on their own, and it will be done very differently state to state, etc., under individual guidance. Because any doctor can write a prescription for it if he can get it and feels it's in the best interest of the patient. You do not need the FDA to say this is approved for coronavirus for a doctor to write a prescription for it to treat coronavirus. A lot of doctors drag their feet if that didn't happen, but they still have the ability. It's called off-label use. It's done all the time with hundreds of drugs all the time. This is well-known science. There's a reason that doctors in Australia, Japan, South Korea, and France decided to use this. If people are acting as if these guys went, you know what I'm going to do? I don't know how to fix this guy with coronavirus, and he's going to die. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get the PDR, the Positions Dex Reference, big giant book full of all the drugs there are, and just <clears throat> and stick my finger in there. Oh, shit, chloroquine, let's try that. That's not how this happened. This has been used at least since 2005 to treat other coronaviruses, and they're all a family of viruses, and they all replicate the same way. They might respond differently. They might hit people differently. They might be less degrees of contagious. They might be more or less lethal. But they're still the same family of viruses, and they still produce more of themselves by hijacking RNA. And if you put zinc in the cell, you stop that. So these doctors that did this did it at various stages. They did it with people that were early on, and they did it with people in, in, in later stages that were in serious risk. And they found it to work to different degrees throughout the whole thing. Well, there's a reason they did it. Again, there's a reason they did it, and that's because it was already known science. So I think you'll see it start there, and as it becomes more available, they'll start. To, it'll start moving down the, the chain of treatment. And I think within... Three weeks is, is my guess on the outside. Almost anyone that's at all symptomatic, diagnosed, will pro that can, that doesn't have a, a other drug that's a contraindication, that doesn't have a specific health condition where it's not safe or what have you, almost anybody that can, that's tested positive, will be treated with this. And the reason they're not doing it now really comes down to we don't have enough. There's a doctor in New York... He's treating the Hasidic Jewish community. He just prescribed it. He just did it. Once he heard that it worked, he just did it for over 600 patients. Early on, as soon as he knew, give them a test, they, they, they're positive, boom, put them on it. 600 plus patients, zero hospitalizations. This is not, I don't care if you hate Trump. If you hate Trump, you can hate Trump, and you can still accept that sometimes what somebody you hate says is true. Some of you, I think, if he said that oxygen kept you alive, would put a bag over your head. If that's you, go ahead and do it. Anyway, I'd like you to hear right now, and if you're on Facebook listening to this live, you won't hear this part. You'll just hear a good 10-second pause so I can splice it in. Um, but I want you to hear right now from a man who was treated with this, and then I'll come back and we're going to give you your home, your home version thereof of this. You can use this as a preventative if you can find everything you need right now. And, and please do it safely. Um... And then we're going to go into growing your own food. Mary, who works for that company that makes cooking equipment at high-end restaurants in L.A. and around the world, thinks he contracted COVID-19 at a conference in New York. He had a fever for five days, horrendous back pain, headache, and cough, and was sleeping about 15 hours a day when he's used to five. 
He drove to the hospital in Florida where he's based with pneumonia and coronavirus. And it was so bad. Yesterday, he said goodbye to his wife and three children when a friend stepped in and told him about a drug. To me, there was no doubt in my mind that I wouldn't make it till morning. So to me, the drug saved my life. 52-year-old Rio Giordaneri has been isolated in the ICU at Joe DiMaggio Hospital in South Florida with COVID-19. On oxygen, but still unable to breathe. Friday evening, he says he was on his deathbed. Doctors told him there was really nothing more they could do. I was at the point where I was barely able to speak and breathing was very challenging. I, I really thought my end was there. I'd been through nine days of solid pain um, and it just, it, for me, it was the end was there. So I've made some calls to, uh, let my, you know, say my, in my own way goodbye to my friends and family. A dear friend sent him a recent article about hydroxychloroquine, an old anti-malaria medicine proven successful to treat COVID-19 patients overseas, and insisted he take the drug. So, Giardinari reached out to an infectious disease doctor. He gave me all the reasons why I would probably not want to try it, because there's no trials, there's no testing. Um, it wasn't something that was approved. And I said, look, I don't know if I'm going to make it till the morning. Because at that point, I just really thought I was coming to the end because I couldn't breathe anymore. And uh, he agreed and authorized the use of it. And 30 minutes later, the nurse uh, gave it to me. An hour after an IV with the medicine, he says his heart felt like it was beating out of his chest. They had to come in and, and get me calmed down and take care of me. And uh, had another episode about two hours later. And where I just got to the point where I couldn't breathe and my heart was pounding again. Um, so they, they gave me some Benadryl through the system and something else. I'm not sure what it was. And it allowed me to go to sleep. And when I woke up about four, well, exactly 4.45 in the morning, I woke up like nothing ever happened. Miraculously, he's since had no fever or pain, feels fine, and he's able to breathe again. Giordinari says doctors now believe those episodes were not a reaction to the medicine, but the virus progressing in his body. On Fox 11's The Issue Is this week, oncologist Dr. Paul Song says while using hydroxychloroquine to treat COVID-19 is still preliminary, it's extremely compelling and hopeful with such an infectious virus. A lot of people are walking around shedding viruses unknowingly, and if you can eliminate this from the body in such a short period of time, then the potential to infect others is greatly diminished, not to mention the recovery period for patients. Giardinari says it was life-saving. I really just want everybody to know this, there's an option. You don't have to be sick and just sit there and try to hydrate. There's a medicine that's working. And three doses of the medicine. Doctors now have to wait to make sure coronavirus is completely knocked out of his system, so of course he doesn't infect anyone else. He's hoping to go home to his family in about five days. All right, I think that's, you know, people keep saying it's anecdotal. When it happens once or twice, it's anecdotal. When you start adding the numbers up, the total number of patients treated and cured in Australia, the total number of patients treated and cured in South Korea, the total number of patients treated and cured in Japan, the total number of patients treated and cured in France doing the same thing, the total number of doctors saying, hey, I did it too, even though nobody told me I could because I just can and you start adding it up, it stops being anecdotal. It starts being evidence-based. Can we, can we just be honest about that? Anyway, 
I want to give you this one more time. I'm going to give you the quick, down, and dirty thing, and I'm going to tell you I can't give you dosage information because I'm not even sure what I, what you would do, and I don't have the authority to do that, and I'm not prescribing anything because, again, I'm not a doctor. But as I said, the, re, the way they're using the chloroquine early is in conjunction with zinc. So if you can get your hands on a decent zinc supplement and you take a reasonable amount of zinc based on what medical science says is reasonable, so look up WebMD or something like that and get a dosage information, and take zinc in combination with two things or one or the other, it depends on what you can get, one is green tea extract, and the other one is a supplement called Qcertin. I first started talking about Qcertin quite a while ago. Because a Montreal doctor that worked on the SARS or the SARS treatment program said, I use Qcertin and it works. Well, I didn't know why it worked, but I just said, hey, this guy says he did it. He's legitimate. He checks out. He has the credentials he says he does. And he said, so it's cheap. It's available. I take it all the time anyway. It's just my doctor has me on it. Um, and I work with kind of a nutritional side type of doctor. So I'm already on this. And so I've just, you know, kind of increased it to what the maximum safe daily dosage is, and I just started taking it. Well, when I learned about what was going on with the chloroquine and the zinc, and I really encourage you to listen to this doctor from New York who's using it early, I said, well, I wonder if that's why Qcertin works. So I looked up the information, and it turns out Qcertin is also a zinc ionophore, so it gets zinc into your cells. And it is, again, well-known medical science. Zinc in the cell disrupts the replication of RNA replicating viruses. There's nothing about this that's new information. But it turned out in the study that I found where they, they confirmed it and they did it in mice, and you're not a mouse. So how well it works for humans, I'm not sure. I haven't had time to look for more data, but, again, we've got a Montreal doctor saying it works who worked on SARS, and you got a, a similar virus here in COVID SARS-2. So, yeah, okay, fine. Well, the thing that the researchers did that observed the actual transference of zinc from the body into the cell, they also used green tea extract. That's cheap, it's safe, it's readily available, and you shouldn't exceed the recommended dosage. But I highly recommend that you consider for yourself, after evaluating the science, those three things taken in reasonable doses as a preventative, and have them in your home to maybe, you know, take at the advice of a doctor in slightly elevated levels if you can't get the other treatment. Because I do believe that other treatment is life-saving, and it's going to be a game-changer. Before I move on, one more thing. One more thing on that. The reason you can't just get it in large numbers right away. It wasn't made in huge numbers. <clears throat> There's only so much of it available in the world. There are people that rely on it. Like I said, rheumatoid arthritis and lupus. Well, now they're making it in millions of doses. Myelin's making it. Bear's making it. Teva is making it. But when you start making a, a new drug batch, it doesn't just get made Q8 at the lab and shipped. It gets made at the lab, Q8 at the lab, and shipped to another warehouse where it's then given another quality test. Then it goes to a distribution point, and it's given a third quality test to make sure that, like, we didn't accidentally put cyanide in there to get the dosage wrong. It's very important if you're going to start distributing a medication that does have side effects and must be controlled in dosage that you have the product that you think you have. So it just takes time. It's going to be end of the month And there's going to be something like 10 million doses delivered by, I think, Bayer or Teva. One manufacturer committed to 30 million doses delivered in 30 days, and that was about a week ago. 
So it's coming. All right, let's get on to growing your own food. I want to talk about this um, because we are not going to be the COVID podcast. We're not going to be. In fact, we're going to talk about COVID almost nothing tomorrow. We're going to talk to our special guest tomorrow, which is Eddie Garcia. And we're going to talk about um, regenerative agriculture tomorrow. That's what we're going to talk about tomorrow. We're not going to get stuck in this. We're going to stick with solutions and, and building a better life. Because this will end and we need to put our lives back together. Well, one of the things you can do, and the people that have done it are better shaped than most right now, is learn to grow your own food. So I want to give you some methods of growing your own food and some resources, but I'm going to go real fast through that just for awareness. Because I really want to talk about what to grow today. But I'm also going to provide for you two resources that were never going to be provided to the general public. This year, I went and spoke at the Mother Earth News Fair in Belton, Texas, and I presented on hydroponic indoor growing, and I presented on wicking beds. And I had those two presentations. Of course, before I go present in front of a few you know, hundred people, I actually run through the presentation. I always record that, and I was going to put it in my members' area and only make it available to my members. With all this crap going on, this information needs to be out there, so I'm making it available to everybody for free. You can share it with anybody if they just want the techniques. So hydroponics and container gardens are deeply covered in those two videos, including companion planting and succession planting and, and soil mix and hydroponic fertility and all of that. But I really think if you want to produce food quickly with the least amount of failure, if you teach yourself basic hydroponics, including Kratky, which means you don't even need a pump, that's a really great way to go. Um, I have all my, I have tons of links in the resources today, and I have all the stuff that I recommend for hydroponics there. I have the the free class on hydroponics there. You don't have to register; you just watch it. Uh, and I have all the products that I use linked, and I have two playlists on hydroponics for you as well that are multiple videos each that show you how to do two different types of completely different systems. But hydroponics has so many advantages, and the fact that you can use lights and do it indoors is huge for people right now. Um, another one I want you to think about possibly doing is grow bags. Grow bags are basically cloth bags. You fill them with a soil mix, you water them, and you plant into them. It's as easy as it gets. It's, a, it's really a form of container gardening. But the fact that it's a fabric lets the roots breathe, and it works really great for some people. And you can do things with that, like basically instantly turn them into a wicking bed by taking something like, oh, a cheap kiddie pool and putting some moisture in the bottom of that pool, a small amount of water in the bottom of that pool, and sitting your bags in there. And as long as you don't use too much, it won't get overly saturated, and you have the breathing of the bags. That's a good thing you can do. You can also just grow in ground. If you can grow in ground, it is the cheapest, easiest solution. It also can be the most backbreaking and tiring to get started with. There's some really great ways to accelerate that. One really great way is just take a tarp and you know cover the area you want to garden and kill everything by removing any solar energy from it for a while. If you want to do that even better, put down a bunch of mulch like, let's say, straw or hay or wood chips. They call it lasagna gardening. You can even take lay cardboard down, then lay all that mulch down, lay a tarp on it for a while, and you'll kill all the weeds and all the weed seeds, and then you'll be able to just plant right in the ground. You can just lay down cardboard and mulch and plant through the cardboard. The thing is, you will get a lot of eventual all that grass pushing up through, but 
you know, you can do a short-term garden that way and then maybe make it more long-term since a lot of you guys are caught behind the curve. But in ground if you can. If you want to do a method of container gardening that's pretty cheap, but it does require some special equipment, but it's all stuff you can get, even in areas where there's a shutdown, Home Depot and Lowe's and stores like that are considered essential business, check out Rain Gutter Grow Buckets. And the guy that started that is named Larry Hall. I have a link in the podcast today. And this is basically you take a net cup and put a hole in the bottom of a five-gallon bucket, stick that net cup through the hole, and the bucket sits in a rain gutter. And then you fill the rain gutter with water, you fill the bucket with soil, and you plant into it. It stays watered that way. And if you take a float valve and put a float valve in the rain gutter system, you can keep it all filled, and you take something like a garbage can and fill it up once a week, and you never have to worry about watering. It works really good. It has limitations of the size of the container. And if you're going to plant a bunch of them, it's a lot of soil. Any of these container garden methods, if you don't have cheap access to soil and material, It can be pretty expensive, but, you know, it does get you off the ground really fast. You have a perfect soil mix. It's really easy to weed. Usually your, your, your bag soils that you buy have lots of fertility already in them, what have you, so they have a lot of advantage. Good old-fashioned raised beds, and don't be afraid right now. If you have scrap wood or whatever that's not going to make it long term, just make a box, throw it on the ground, put a couple layers of cardboard underneath it so that you block those weeds, Lay that wooden box on there and fill it up with whatever soil mix that you can get your hands on. Make sure you water sufficiently and plant into it. Um, again, you might have, like if it's not really long, if it's not pressure-treated wood or something, it might only make it a season or two. Yeah, so what? You make another box and move the dirt. You know, then next season in the fall, you go ahead and do a good weed kill while you're getting ready to build a more permanent solution. You can get off the ground fast. Now, I already talked about grow bags. Now I'm going to say bag gardens. Isn't that the same thing? No, it's not. Um, I'll try to find the videos that I did on this, but long ago when I lived in Arkansas and we moved there, the land I had was really bad. And before I got some beds in and stuff like that, I just took some um, some soil. So you go buy the big bags of soil at Home Depot or Lowe's or whatever box store or what have you. Um, you know, like your garden soil, your potting mix, whatever. And I just laid the bags on the ground and poked holes in the plastic and make sure there was enough of an exposure that you could water it well and plant it into the bags. And I poked holes in the bottom so the plant roots could get in, go all the way through the bag into the subsoil. You really want to do that right? You probably want to lay down cardboard and set the bags on top of the cardboard. And you probably want to mulch the bags with something like straw or hay or leaves. Why? Because the one downside with this method is that there's not a lot of depth, so they dry out really fast. So you really got to be on watering it. But it is the fastest way you can grow food. And again, if you can find you know some warehouse store or something selling big, giant bags of potting soil cheap, do it. If you watch the video of me, yeah, organic's great. It's what I try to do all the time. But you know, when I did that in, in, in Arkansas for those videos, I used like miracle Grow soil. Do you know why? So people would know that in hard times that that's what you could do. Because you use that for a season, and then you can add that into any garden, whatever. It's no longer going to have that, that fertility in there. It's not like it has pesticides or herbicides in it. It just has some fertilizer in it. And fertilizer gets used, and it breaks down, and then you can go all organic. When, they, when you go and you convert a, a standard garden to an organic garden, you don't dig all the soil out. You just stop using fertilizers and herbicides and pesticides. And it only takes about six months, and all that stuff's gone. So you can take that approach as well. That's a bag garden. 
And, uh, you know, those are kind of your methods. And, again, I didn't go deep into how to do any of them because I can't. Not if I want to get covered what I want to cover today and not if I want to get you thinking. And the reality is, like, most people will use one or two of these methods. And once you figure out the ones that work for you, there is so much available on my website in old podcasts. There's tons of stuff on the, online from other people, on YouTube, et cetera, on how to do all this stuff. So definitely, you know, kind of just think about those methods. The other thing I want you to think about is shade and soil cost. All right, so most of the time people think that shade on a garden is bad. Let me tell you something. If you live in central Texas like I do, shade on a garden, especially in late afternoon, is a good thing. My main garden spot is on the east side of one of my outbuildings. And it gets sun all day long at about 6 o'clock. And I'm talking about those long days where it's, it, the sun's out till 9 o'clock at night. It's in full shade. And it's in full shade for the rest of the day. And that gives it a break at the end of the day. Eastern sun, western shade in hot, sunny, long-duration climate is the best you can do. In Pennsylvania, our garden was set in a place that got sun all day long. You can also think about using shade cloth. You can think about putting a pergola over your garden. If you put a pergola directly over your garden and throw shade cloth on it once you get into midsummer, it's still going to get sun in the morning and the afternoon from the sides. But you're going to shade it in the heat of the day. Just think about shade and how it can help you. And think about if there's too much of it, how it can hurt you as well. And lastly, before I give you these crops, I want you to really think about using disease-resistant hybrids if you're new to this. And you should, if you're going to, like, say, grow beans or something like that, look up what the diseases are that are most prevalent in beans in your area. And then look for a variety that has disease resistance to it. In the world of homesteading and permaculture and organics, we're all big on high, um, heirloom seeds and saving seed and all that for the long-term zombies or what have you. Hybrids, there's a reason that so many people use them. They have what's known as hybrid, hybrid vigor, and they have certain resistance. And sometimes you'll find heirlooms that have specific disease resistance as well. But please don't be afraid of hybrids. Hybrids are not GMOs. Hybrids are not GMOs. See me on Facebook, guys? Hybrids are not GMOs. Hybrids are hybrids. A shepherd and a collie that breed and make a shepherd collie puppy, that doggy little puppy is a hybrid. A GMO is when we take genetic material from one organism and, and artificially transmit it into another. That's a GMO. So do not be afraid of hybrids and do focus on disease resistance. Let's go through my list that I got for you today of long-duration crops. And let me tell you what I mean by that. What I mean by a long-duration crop compared to something, let's say, like lettuce. Lettuce is fast. You can plant lettuce, and if you do your job right, you should be able to start harvesting lettuce in about 18 days if you're going to harvest baby. You can do that a bunch of ways. You can put a bunch of lettuce seed down, and you can cut like a baby mix like you buy in the store. You can seed too much and at about 20 days harvest a bunch of baby lettuce and leave a bunch behind to grow into adolescent lettuce. You can then harvest half of that and let the other half of it grow into long-term lettuce. But the whole process takes about 40 days. And at like 50, 60 days, when it warms up, your lettuce is crap. It goes to seed. It does what's called bolts. You can do cut and come again where you cut it and it comes back, but you can only do that so much. So if you want continuous lettuce for your salads, well, you have to constantly be starting new plants, and you have to plan that accordingly. For a new person, man, that's a tough order. And I'm not saying not to grow some lettuce. Sure you should, but 
Wouldn't it be great if you had some stuff that you could get going, and once you had success with it, you could harvest it all season long. And if you didn't harvest it for two or three weeks for whatever reason, it didn't go off on you. That's what I got for you. I got a great list, and my folks on Facebook helped me out with it. Here's what we got for you. Number one, this is my favorite long-duration crop. It's called Swiss chard, and it comes in tons of colors for the ribs. The ribs kind of look like celery, and the leaves kind of look like spinach. And you kind of use it the same way. You can cook it or you can use it raw. The leaves are good raw. The stalks, when they get big, aren't that good raw, but they're really good cooked. This is a vegetable that a lot of people, when I told them about it and they tried it, they're like, where has this been my whole life? I grow a bunch of different colors. Those of you that live in HOA hells, you can put this out in your front, like landscape areas. It looks like an ornamental, especially if you do like the peppermint, the rhubarb, the orange, the yellow, all these colors. And you can just cut your outer leaves and it just keeps growing back. And you cut your outer leaves and it just keeps growing back. All the way up to almost zone six, it'll, it'll make it through winter or late into winter. It does handle a freeze, not just a frost. It will handle a freeze once established. Zone six, it will pro so you're like central Pennsylvania there. It probably will die on you. Seven and up, it will go right through winter and it's what's known as a biannual. So about 16, 18 months of age, it'll send up a seed stalk and make seed. At that point, it doesn't taste good anymore. But that's a long time. I have whole beds of nothing but this plant. And anytime we want some, I just go get it. It's on-demand groceries. It asks very little of you. It doesn't have a lot of pest problems. Even when you get pests eating the leaves a little bit, it doesn't matter. And it tastes wonderful. Next one, sweet potato. You're like, dummy, you said it's supposed to be long-duration harvestable crops. I know how sweet potatoes work. You harvest them at the end of the season. You have to wait all year to get them. Not if you eat the greens. Potato greens will kill you. Yeah, potato greens will kill you. Potato is a nightshade. Sweet potato is not a nightshade. Sweet potato greens are delicious. I grow the heck out of sweet potato every year. They're my go-to summer green. They taste like spinach when you cook them. I don't really like them raw. Some people do. The stems are not good, but you just strip the, the, the leaves off. It grows so fast, you can never eat as much as you get. And then you get a tuber crop at the end. Easy way to do sweet potatoes. If you don't have any source where you can get what's called slips, uh, if they're sold out already or what have you, no one around you makes them, go to the grocery store, your next supply run, get a couple organic sweet potatoes of whatever variety you want to grow, fill a, a shallow pan with water about an inch deep, and lay your potato on its side, put it in a sunny window. You need organic because they spray the inorganic ones with... Uh, a compound that keeps them from, from budding out. They don't want them to sprout. You can't do that with organics, so they don't. They'll start to put little, they're called slips, little shoots will start to come up. When they get, you know, six inches high, you slip them off the potato. It means you just kind of push them and they come right off the potato. Just drop them in a glass of water, they'll root. Once they have roots on them, stick them in the dirt. One sweet potato can make like a hundred of these things. And once that starts growing, if you want more in other beds, just cut an end off, strip it, put it in a glass of water, and when it roots, plant it. If you get two or three off of a potato, you can make a hundred by the end of the season easily. It's pretty much what I do every year. I grow a Japanese purple sweet potato that actually has a purple skin and a white flesh. It's the one I like the most, but you can grow any sweet potato the same way. The next one is celery. Celery, everybody thinks of the nice bunches that we get. That are all, that what they do is they call blanch those. They tie them up. And that's why your outer celery is really dark green, and as you go in, it gets lighter and sweeter. Well, you can grow it that way if you really want to, but the best way to grow celery for long-duration crops is you just grow it and let it grow the way it's supposed to. 
and it grows more spread out. And you cut your outer stalks, and it just grows back. And you cut your outer stalks, and it just grows back. And it cuts your, you see how that goes? And it just keeps growing back. And it will grow into the next season, and it will send up a seed head and make tons of seed for you, which will make tons more celery. And the, e the celery seed can be a bit tough to start. You really want to take, for celery, the best way I've found to do it is get a good light soil mix, nice and moist, in a flat. And then sprinkle celery seed on it all over the top and just kind of push it down with your hand. Put it, in a, put it inside a, a Ziploc bag or use a humidity dome, a plastic dome, one or the other, but hold the humidity in. Put it under grow lights, and when it sprouts, let it all sprout up. Once it all sprouts, take it out of the humidity dome and let it grow out a little bit, and then just pull your little seedlings out. Or you can do what I did. I just planted in my ebb and flow beds in my aquaponic system and let it go to seed, and next year there's hundreds and hundreds of celery plants. I put a video out on that today that I'll link to. Either way, once you have lots of little celery plants, just put them wherever you want to grow them. It grows, it's really not fussy. It handles freezes once it's established. It tastes better than any celery you'll buy in a store, but even easier... When you do buy a big bunch of celery from the store, don't cut the bottom off. Pull your stalks off when you get to the heart. Just plant your heart, keep it moist and a little bit shaded until it establishes. When it turns bright green, it's on, it'll grow. All the celery on my property grown right now, except for some special Chinese celery that I'm growing, uh, but almost all of it just came from grocery store celery that self-receded and just kept going and going and going. It's literally free. Next, I don't know, have a lot of experience with these, but I'm going to mention both of them. They're called walking onions and potato onions. Walking onions, they grow a bulb onion under the soil, but then the tops get little onions that you can use and pick. They fall over and they make new onions. Potato onions, I don't know nothing about, but I wanted to bring those up today. Those are both great. Chives. Chives are wonderful because once you get a great big clump of chives, if you want more, you can literally just pull some up out as long as you get the roots with them, divide them, and replant them. And I have a whole bed of nothing but garlic and onion chives, just a mix of them. And, and that way you always have that available for that flavor. Chives are fantastic. I really recommend uh, that you definitely consider growing chives. I'm going to be giving you some now going forward that you may have to look up to find seed sources and stuff like that because you're less likely to have heard of them. But the next one is, it's called New Zealand spinach. And I don't remember the, the real name for it. That's like a... You know, like a second name, like a common name, they call it. Um, but it's grown heavily in Australia and New Zealand, hence the New Zealand spinach name. This is a green. It has these seeds that almost look like a, a sandbur, but they're not that bad. Um, I've never actually had mine produce seed, but it must have because I've had it come back. So it must have self-receded. I just didn't notice it. And it, it's kind of like spinach. It's really, really good cooked. It's okay raw. It's good raw in a salad with other stuff. There's a lot of greens to me that if you just eat a salad of nothing but that one variety, it's bitter or off-putting in some way, and you mix it, and it's good. So it's really good that way, but you're not going to sit down and eat a bowl of it raw. It is, again, an outstanding cooked green. Uh, I've had it come back on its own in Zone 7 repeatedly. Like once established, it'll probably come back for you a lot. It's stupid easy to grow. I've never seen a pest attack it. Um, and it's just one of those awesome things. The next one's called longevity spinach. I think it's also known as Okinawan spinach. 
but I'm not sure they're the same thing. If not, then you want to grow both of them if you want to check these stuff out. They're really easy to root and make new, new cuttings and new plants of, and again, you use it like spinach, so longevity spinach. Arugula. <clears throat> I try to eat my salads mostly spinach, arugula, and little bits of lettuce. Lettuce does not have as much nutrition. Now, good quality leaf lettuces, romaines, etc., are grown in, you know, well-run hydroponic or, you know, really uh, nutrient-dense systems with soil um, tend to have more nutrient than, you know, the lettuce you're going to buy in a store. It's still nowhere near the nutritional powerhouse things like spinach and arugula and longevity spinach and New Zealand spinach are. Arugula is a powerhouse of nutrition and vitamins and minerals. It really is. It's another one of those plants. You know, it's got that sharp, nutty taste. I've never seen it have problems with pests. Once you establish a bed of arugula, you can pretty much just harvest and harvest and harvest and harvest if you don't cut it to the ground and harvest all season long. I've got arugula right now. They're, you know, three foot tall with seed all over them that I'm just letting go wild and not harvesting at this point because it does get really bitter at that point, and let it reseed. And basically it becomes perpetual. So you have this long-duration crop the first season, you let it go to seed the second season, then it's, it's selectively reseeding and selectively regrowing. The stuff that's adapted to your climate, your yard, your conditions, is your second season crop. And it's just like once you have it, it's, 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 it becomes a weed, in the best way possible. Another good one to look at, and it kind of more goes toward the mid-tier, but I decided to throw it in here for you um, just because so many people recommended it on Facebook, and it's called Ground Cherry. And Ground Cherry kind of looks sort of like a tomato in a little paper husk. You know, right now, um, it, they wouldn't be ready yet, but if we're still dealing with this crap a month or two from now, boy, they're a great treat for kids. They kind of taste like a mix between a tomato, a pineapple, and a cherry. You can make jelly with them. You can just eat. I just eat them straight. Uh, they're one of my little vices because they have some sugar in them. Uh, but they're fantastic. Next, all the herbs, but especially like your powerhouse cooking herbs, oregano, basil, thyme, parsley. Those those four especially sage, uh, anything like that. Different mints. You get those established, and they, they really, in nature, they kind of are weeds. They're weeds that we found a use for and that we've done some selective breeding with. Of all of them, basil's probably the one that's more likely to eventually put seed on, get a little bit bitter or whatever. But I'm telling you, I've had basil get big like a bush in the summer and cut it to the ground, and then the new growth is tender again. So definitely your, your herbs, because they give you fresh herbs are like so much better. Than, than dry herbs. I do cook a lot with dry herbs, but man, I prefer fresh. Especially things like basil and oregano and thyme, uh, parsley, rosemary, all of that stuff. It's just so great fresh and so easy to grow. There's no reason not to do it. Next up, takes a little bit of specialization, but it's not hard. If you have a good wet system, um, watercress. And watercress is just delicious if you like it. It has that peppery taste. Put a video out again with the celery with my grandson. Gave him some watercress. He was not amused. But um, I love watercress and salad. Watercress soup is good. But it's another nutritional powerhouse. It's great at mining minerals. And we all want our, our nutrition. Like I've always tried to tell people, growing calories is fine. But first grow your nutrition because all the stuff that you can grow nutrition with is fast. 
grow your nutrition, buy your calories, and move into growing more of your your uh, you know your your calories long term with things like potato and corn and stuff like that. Watercress. Next one is called perilla, and if you looked at perilla and you didn't know what it was, you'd probably think it was a kind of mint, and it is in the same family, but it doesn't have a mint-like taste. It's delicious, though. It's good raw. It is good cooked. It is a delicious, delicious herb-slash-vegetable. It also can be very expensive. Sushi chefs use it. Um, one of my good friends does microgreens commercially, and... He gets a lot of money for Perilla microgreens. But you can, I mean, it is dead simple to grow. They're little bitty seeds, but dead simple to grow. And if you're listening to this and thinking, how am I going to remember all this? It's all written down. All you got to do is go to the survivalpodcast.com and pull up episode 2624. But Perilla. Next, sorrel. Sorrel's a great herb to establish on your property because it's really good to eat. It has a lemony taste. I grow regular plain old um, green sorrel. And I grow red vein sorrel both. It is basically perennial. It just comes back over and over. You can harvest it all season. A lot of times your green uh, sorrel in some systems will kind of disappear in late summer. It's still there. The roots are underground. It'll come back in fall. It's one of the first things to pop up in the spring. My experience in my climate in Texas with red vein sorrel is it's just always here. Like you can't, like you have to try to kill it once you establish it. And who, why would you? It's delicious and it's beautiful. This is another one. You guys with HOA Hells, you can grow this stuff right out in front of the blue hairs. They'll be like, oh, that's pretty. Uh, it's supposed to be. Now get out of the way while I eat it. Um, collards and kale. A lot of people grow kale. They grow kale. They cut the kale. They're done with the kale. Kale, you can get like it really big, almost like a tree, and just start harvesting leaves from the bottom up. I grew kale one year. I had it. It looked like, you know, there are actually what they call tree or perennial kales, but any kale will just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger over time. And you can just take leaves from the bottom and let it do that until it kind of runs its course. Um, collards are, collard greens, if you like them, are a great long-term uh, green as well. Another one that there's some specialization here. You're going to have to go on eBay and buy this from somebody that ain't supposed to sell it to you. Don't worry, it's not a drug. It's called water spinach. And it's in the same family as sweet potato, and it tastes a lot like sweet potato greens, except the stems are good, too. It's also known as Ipamira aquatica. It is one of the fastest-growing plants, and they worry about it being invasive. The thing is, for 90% of the United States, it can't invade because it can't overwinter. Um, I grow it in my little water gardens and stuff like that. Basically, I just take a tub, like a, a concrete mixing tub you get for about seven, eight bucks from Home Depot or Lowe's, like a 12-gallon or 14-gallon, whatever size they are. I fill it with soil, and I build a little shelf in my garden pond, and I sit it on the shelf. So it's sitting about you know an inch of water, and the rest of it's above water, and I put seed in it. And I let it grow over the top and out, but I also let it float on the top of the surface. It's delicious. And, I mean, if you do, uh, if you do aquaponics and you put it in an ebb and flow bed, you better only want it in that ebb and flow bed and nothing else. It will take over. And if you get it to grow out of that ebb and flow bed into water and back out of there, um, the one year I did that out of one of the tubs, the little 14-gallon uh, tub, um, I was producing about half a bushel of it a week to feed my ducks. And it is delicious. The stems are good. The leaves are good. It's all good. Uh, next up, Malabar spinach. Malabar spinach is um, kind of your like grow anywhere perennial if you can overwinter it. Everybody else, you grow it as an annual it has a little bit of kind of a 
slimy taste, kind of like okra, um, but it's really delicious overall. And it's just this long vine that grows, and it puts these little uh, little seeds on that look like black pepper. They're not black pepper, and they'll stain your fingers purple. That's why they call it Malabar spinach, because it looks like pepper plant. Uh, but really, really easy to grow. Anything, if, as long as you got something to train it up on, and you just harvest it, and it just keeps growing. And you harvest it, and it keeps growing all season long. Next is amaranth. I was back and forth on do I include this in a long-duration crop, because you, you can make it one. But the way I use it here is I grow a red amaranth. And I need to actually go seed that this afternoon in a lot of my beds. I seed it toward the front of my beds. This th that is it's well featured in the uh, presentation I'm giving away today, and uh, it grows really fast. And you use it as a green like spinach. And when it's really little, you use it in in your salads. And so you you, you seed the hell out of it, and you take as much as you want for salad. Then it gets up, you know, four or five, six inches. You cut it out and you use it like a, a cooking green. And you can do that all the way up until it's about 12 inches. And if you want, you can let some of it grow long-term and produce a grain crop. And then if you do that, you're going to end up with a lot of it self-reseeding and it comes back forever. And, uh, again, I like the red amaranth. In my climate, the red amaranth turns into green amaranth in about two and a half months from now. Once the sun gets really intense, it doesn't need that extra darkness to pull in more solar energy, so it kind of sheds that color and it goes to a green, and I stop growing it for the year unless I let a few grow out. Let's talk about some mid-tier long-duration crops. These are crops that take longer to get into production, but you get a lot of production over a long time, and these are the ones you're going to be more familiar with, eggplant. I always thought I hated eggplant until I learned how to make eggplant, and I learned it was more than one, one kind of eggplant. Your big eggplants like you see in a store, your, your conventional ones, those need to be cut and salted and sweated before you cook them or they taste like an ashtray. As soon as you cut them and salt them and then cook them, they taste delicious. A lot of your Asian long eggplants, you don't have to do that with them. They're just, my wife was sure she ate eggplant. I grew some uh, Ping Tung um, Asian eggplant last year. She ate every bit of it I cooked every time I cooked it. It just tastes fantastic. It's, I don't even know how you wouldn't like it if it's made properly. The thing about eggplant is it loves heat. So this will be your later in the season crop that will come on really heavy for you. But I've seen eggplants that are six foot tall and they're just covered in eggplants from one plant. So it, it's something that gets overlooked a lot. But especially look at your long Asian varieties. Those are the ones you have to do the least amount of work for. Um, eggplant can be dehydrated. It can be frozen. That changes everything because there's not really any other good way. Like, I've never had canned eggplant. I don't think I ever will. I've even heard of something called eggplant jerky, but I'm skeptical, but you can check into it. Cucumber. Cucumbers, one, I need you to really pay attention to what you buy. I believe it's Parks Whopper, but there's a Parks Cucumber, Parks Seed Company, that is known as the most disease-resistant cucumber in the world. Um Cucumbers tend, especially new gardeners where you don't know what to look for, you'll see cucumber beetles. These are little black and yellow striped beetles. And I go, oh, cucumber beetles are going to eat my cucumbers. They don't really cause a lot of problem as far as what they eat. But they transmit something called cucumber mosaic virus, and it just decimates your cucumbers. It just kills them. So you want to look, especially in the south, that's something we have a lot of problem with is the, the mosaic virus. You want to look for varieties that are resistant to that, or you need to find out what diseases really hit cucumbers in your area and find varieties that are resistant to it. If you do that, 
you know, a couple cucumber plants. You can have more cucumbers. You'll have to learn how to make pickles just because you'll have too many of them. Uh, next up, tomatoes. Tomatoes, you can often have, you know, problems with blight. I really recommend if you have had problems with blight with your tomatoes in the past, you look at doing them hydroponically. Blight in your tomatoes is a soil-borne fungus. And it's very hard, especially in southern climates where we don't get hard freezes, to get rid of once it's in your soil. Not growing them for a couple of years and coming back, that sometimes works. But if you want to be able to do this hydroponically, you don't have a soil-borne fungus to deal with. And every season, you can just sanitize your equipment and start from scratch. So if you've had trouble with tomatoes in the past, look at that. My favorite tomatoes to grow are multiple varieties of cherry tomatoes. And I love them because they're great to dehydrate. And I just We eat as many as we can while they're coming. And I cut them in half when I, when I can't use them. And I throw them in the dehydrator. And I dehydrate them and I throw them in a jar. We're still eating tomatoes from last year, even though I only get a, you know, I get about six weeks of harvest before the blight hits them. I'm going to try to get more this year with hydro. Um, but that's deeply explained in my container garden uh, presentation that's available for free today. Next, peppers. I love peppers. And I love plants that are easy not just to grow, that my family eats, that replaces part of the grocery bill, but they're easy to store. Peppers require no blanching before you freeze them. They require no blanching before you dehydrate them. Our favorite way to store peppers is we freeze them. We dice them, we throw them in a Ziploc bag, we throw them in the freezer, we label the Ziploc bag. Sweet and hot. You're cooking, you reach in the freezer, if they're all kind of clumped together, you bang them on the counter so they break up, throw a couple handfuls in, zip the bag up, throw them back in. Easy peasy. I grow heavily Cubanelle peppers, a variety of, you know, a couple varieties of, you know, sweet peppers, bell peppers, Marconi, stuff like that. And I grow jalapenos like crazy, and I grow anchos. Those are my favorite, but grow whatever you want. Beans and peas, I consider really to be a great long-duration, mid-production system because a lot of your beans, you harvest them, wait a couple weeks, beans are back, harvest them again, beans are back, harvest them again, beans are back. In some parts of the country, you can do a lot of that with peas down here in the south. You know, if, you didn't, if your peas aren't half-grown this year already, you're not doing peas this year. And the reason you're not doing peas this year is because once it gets hot, which is like very soon, They just they don't they don't do well anymore for you. They're a cool weather crop, uh, so you can plant them for the fall. But beans and peas, and really consider Asian long beans, or they're also known as Chinese noodle beans. Don't worry, you're not going to get Chinese coronavirus from Chinese noodle bean. Some knuckleheads need to hear that. Um, these things grow like a foot long or longer. They're an awesome bean. You can get seed and plant new seed the same season. Like you can get multiple generations of seed in one season. They grow really fast. They come in green and dark red. They taste just like the green beans you're used to. I have found that they have a lot less problems with diseases. Um, the bean that I found is a bush bean, a bush green bean that has the least amount of uh, disease problems. is called Jade 2. That's another one that you can look up, Jade 2 green beans. But green beans are a fantastic long-duration crop. I like bush beans over pole beans with the green beans, though, for long duration. It seems like they, they put new beans on faster. And the thing with green beans to get the best results is once they start producing, harvest. Harvest, harvest, har The more you harvest, the more they'll produce for you. And then I just wanted to give you a couple more kind of low-maintenance, less-continuous harvest, long-duration options that you can put in the ground now, and you don't have to do much with, and you get a big harvest at the end of the season. 
these were you know things like corn, though I'm not really going there today. Corn's a totally different animal. It's up to you. Um, but winter squash. And the big problem we have with winter squash is something called a, squ a squash vine borer. We also get squash bugs. They're two different critters. Squash bugs are the ones that suck all the stuff out of your leaves and the leaves die. But squash plants grow fast, and if they're healthy, they usually survive that. Vine borers go into the what they are. They look like a wasp. They lay across between a moth and a wasp. They lay eggs on the squash, and they hatch. And then they go in the vine, and they form a maggot before it turns into the, the fly part. And it eats the whole center of the vine out. If you've ever grown squash, and like it just looks really sad, and then it kind of comes back at the end of the day, and every day that gets worse and longer before it comes back, and then one day it just dies... And then you open it, you, you try to figure out what happened to it, and it just kind of the, the, the stem is just gone like it rotted. That's what you had as a vine borer. Well, some varieties of winter squash are so woody and dense that the vine borers can't eat them. The Probably the go-to for your winter squash is called butternut, and something most people are familiar with. It makes a fantastic roasted vegetable. It makes a fantastic soup. And you can usually get production off of it no matter where you are. A lot of your neck pumpkins are like that. Any of your winter squash that has that dense stem. And it's not you can't do the other stuff. I mean, I, I grow zucchini every year. I grow some yellow every year. I grow Trombachino zucchini, which is both a summer and winter squash in one. They're really amazing. I grow that every year, but I'm trying to give you stuff that's like... You can count on it because a lot of you guys, you know, you're, you're getting off the ground. You're doing your first uh, planning this year because, gee, you woke up to the fact that it's a good idea. Or you've kind of been doing it, but now you're taking it more seriously and you need more production. You want to guarantee. Next, it would be a great uh, thing to plant right now is onions. Garlic's more of a winter, a, a fall crop. You plant it in the fall and you pick it in the next summer. Uh, but garlic and onions, because you're going to go into fall. So you want to think about where you want to put them. I plant garlic everywhere. And I don't even worry about what time of year it is. When I use garlic and you end up with those last kind of like five or six little fiddly pieces of garlic, I just plant those anywhere and everywhere. I stick them in my, my ebb and flow beds in my aquaponics system, and I cut the greens off of them and use them like chives. But a lot of times I'll have so much of that, once they root, I'll stick them in the soil somewhere. It's, the garlic is great for helping to keep pest pressure down on your other crops as well. The last one, we are talking about peas and beans, but I'm talking now about cow peas and dry beans and stuff like that. These are beans that you're harvesting for their, you know, for a dry bean product or cow peas that you're harvesting at the end of the season. They're really, really hardy. They grow really, really well. And you just kind of plant them. You wait to the end of their season, maybe not the end of your total season, and harvest them in one go. And that gives you a great harvest. Uh, when I say cow peas, think beyond just normal black-eyed peas like purple hole peas and, you know, Crowder peas. And there's a lot of, you could probably do a show called, you know, more about more about field peas than you want to know. I will say some stuff about field peas, though. They are one of the things that a lot of people in the South during the Civil War really depended on because the Union troops didn't know what they were. So when they burn all the fields, they thought, well, that's just a field full of weeds. So they didn't burn them. And with, you know, even back then with no real oversight, those things survived. I grow them all over in my food forest and stuff like that. I just throw them as a cover crop because they're a nitrogen fixer, and I still get some yield off of them, the ones the ducks don't find and eat. Um, but they're really, really easy to grow. And some of my friends in Louisiana, man, they grow the hell out of purple hole peas. And they're, they're just a delicious crop. I don't eat a lot of these legumes now myself because I go low-carb, 
But if that's not you, then you shouldn't you know, let my decisions influence what you grow. So that kind of rounds it out. I know that's kind of a lightning round and a bunch of stuff for y'all, but uh, I really hope you enjoyed today's show so far, and let's just get ready to wrap up. So just a reminder, um, all the stuff that I talked about today is available in the show notes. You can go to the survivalpodcast.com or tspc.co. If you're listening to this kind of in the future, and we've done some more episodes, you can just type episode-2624 into the search uh, item, and you'll find this list. And all of the stuff I talked about, um, tons of videos, two free classes on hydroponics, one, and container gardens, the other, all the other resources, it's all free. You don't have to register. You don't have to give me an email address. You don't have to subscribe. You don't have to do anything. I, I'm a good marketer. I've built a pretty good business over the last 12 years. Right now, right now, I feel like this is my time of service. This is my time of service. And anything I can do to help anybody make their life better right now is what I need to be doing. So I've got my membership on sale for half price until this shit is over. I'm not even putting a limit on it. I have my membership on sale till this is over. Normally, these classes would go in my members area only. They are free to everybody. You don't even have to buy it. There is no way I'm withholding anything right now. I even thought about just opening the membership program for free, but I have to pay my bills and take care of my family. And it really may get to be the case in the next couple of weeks where I'm paying my bills and my son and daughter-in-law's bills to a degree, too. So I can't do that, but... I will just give and give and give until this is over. Because the last 12 years of my life have been spent teaching these things to the best of my ability, and I'm getting the best paychecks I could ever get right now. I get you know, a couple dozen emails a day from people, thank you, we're better off for you. I get emails from people saying, I stopped listening two years ago, but I didn't stop doing And I just wanted you to know that my family's well prepared for this because of what we've learned from, from your show. I don't ever want that to stop. Like I said, I kind of see my run on this being a 30-year run. I'm not even halfway through it yet. But I'm going to give and give and give because I know how this works. It's how I built the whole thing. You give and everything else takes care of itself. So please make your make available make you know make use of these resources. A lot of people are talking about education right now, learning while you're home. Uh, these two classes, you know, one of them, the one on hydroponics um because they kind of worked me in at the end. Mother Earth News put me outside, which would have been no big deal. It was covered and it was a nice screen and all. But like a cold front blew in that day, and people froze their ass off to to get to hear that that instructional. And you can sit in the comfort of your own home and learn tons about hydroponics. And I like to help people when you guys ask me questions by email and all. But if you guys go through those courses, you can help me help you because you can shortcut so much. I can't answer every question. But when you're informed, you can ask a specific question. I can almost always give you an answer or say you'll find it here. So please use these resources, and please tell me what else you want me to talk about. Let me know. You can always email me, jack at com and put TSPC in the subject line. Uh, with that, the other way you can help me is you do your online shopping through tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com. If you go there, you see all the items I've reviewed over the years. And if you see it there, I own it, I use it, 
I spent my money on it, and I would spend my money on it again, or you will not see it there. That, that's the rules I have for items that I review. Uh, but no matter what you end up buying, if you start there, you help support us. Today's item of the day is a new one, a new one to me, too. Um, you know, as a prepper, I often say there's certain things, if you don't have that, are you even a prepper? And one of them super glue. Like, super glue is such a workhorse, I feel like if you call yourself a prepper and you don't keep some super glue around, I don't know what to tell you. Well, the other day, um, the bracket for my sous vide cooker, uh, made by Nova, somebody with little hands, I won't say who, somebody with little hands, knocked it off the bar, tried to hide it from me after they did it, too, and uh, it hit the, the, the hard tile floor and it cracked. Now, this is the thing that holds the sous vide cooker upright in the in in the pot, pot when it's making me my delicious steaks or whatever I'm doing with it. And I found it, and it was cracked almost completely in half. Where like the back, if you ever see anything that's like kind of a hard plastic, it cracks like it's almost like a hinge. Like if you pushed on it, would it just came completely apart? So I I, I was going to go dig some into the pantry and get out the super glue. I said, I said to my wife, I said, "Do we have any super glue out?" She goes, "Yeah, here." And she handed me this stuff made by Gorilla Glue. It's called Gorilla Super Glue. Which, that was no big deal to me. Well, I took the little top off the applicator and tried to squirt it on there. It wouldn't come out because it was almost empty. And, you know, they kind of sealed themselves up. So I'm about to do some surgery on it and poke a hole in it. She goes, you do know there's a brush in there? I said, I did not know that. So you take the lid off. Not only will it squirt, it also has a little, like, a fingernail polish brush. And it's a gel. So you can precision applicate it with the brush or you can squirt it. This I don't know why they don't all do that. It's genius. Um, so it worked perfectly. Now it did that particular type of plastic. It wasn't that, you know, two thirty second bond thing. Um, it stuck, but it wasn't you could tell it wasn't stable. I put a little weight on it and let it overnight, and it's as good as new. And unless little hands knocking on the floor again from great heights, uh, it should never have a problem again. And the reason I brought it around today was not just because I just discovered it, and I'm so happy with it. The reason I brought it around today is because right now you don't need to be replacing things that don't need to be replaced. I'm all for fixing things all the time, but right now you have shortages of supplies, you have longer delivery times, and you, a lot of you guys are you know, not having a lot of extra money to spend. So... This is really the time to fix stuff. And I kind of put this up there with, you know, uh, super glue and now the gorilla version thereof, uh, zip ties, duct tape, and tarred bank line. And you save the wire from your straw bales, your baling wire. With those five things, I can fix 99% of what's wrong on this property with a pair of pliers and cutters. Right? So. If you don't have super glue, are you even really a prepper? And I really recommend you check out this stuff from Gorilla Glue, super glue brush and nozzle. Uh, again, I don't know why everybody didn't think of it. You can even see the little bracket that I fixed with it. You can tell because the kind of white glue line of where it was cracked. But um, this is one of those things. I don't even know if they sell the brackets individually. Uh, I would have got by one way or another. I would have improvised something. But, boy, it was nice to be able to just fix it because the sous vide cooker is one of the most flexible tools in my kitchen. So you might want to consider this stuff, and you always help us when you do your online shopping at T-Spaz. With that, let's wrap things up. We're in Kenny Rogers week because, sadly, Mr. Rogers did just – I never even thought about calling him Mr. Rogers. Anyway, Kenny did pass away, I think, at 78 or 80 years of age very recently. And – um He was just a good dude and just great music. And, I mean, a lot of you guys that are younger, 
you may not really know him that well, but if you're in the Gen X or Boomer generation um, or the tweener generation, there's a lot of people in that, that get generation gets left out. You got the Boomers, you got Gen X, you kind of got people like my wife's generation that are between the two. They call them tweeners. Um, all of that. Now, if you were old enough to pay attention to music in the 70s and 80s, Kenny Rogers is something you remember one way or another. Um, this song is from like kind of the toward the end of the biggest part of his career, 1986, and it's called 20 Years Ago. And it's kind of a song about a town that, you know, 20 years ago you would have seen him there. And I think it's pretty autobiographical and pretty, pretty true to the storyline in it. But I think there, this story is true of all of us. And if, especially if you are old enough to be in those demographics I'm talking about. Kind of think about where you were 20 years ago, 2000, year 2000. You know, I was I was not quite yet married to my wife. I was already, you know, being a father to my son, though. Um, you know, he's my stepson, I guess, technically. I just call him my son. Uh, we got married like a year from then. I was young in my career. I was driving a kind of piece of crap vehicle at the time. I was just starting to actually become successful, and I was willing to do that. But then I want to think, you know, what about 20 years before that? I was a little kid. And then you can think any point in time in your life and think 20 years back from that time, where were you? And how much things change. Not just in the world, but for us. And how fleeting the opportunities we have are. And that never changes. That never changes. When you're 50, you think, boy, I wish I was 30 again. Well, you can't be. But you got a lot of life ahead of you. You're 60. You have a lot of life ahead of you. Make the most of it. You almost say, if you're a long-term listener, make the most of your dash. One day you will die. We all do it. Can't escape it. It's part of being human. It's part of being, as far as we know, all living things eventually die and return to whatever it is we turn, return to. Well, with humans, we generally somehow are mentioned, whether it's a stone or an epitaph or an obituary or something, and they'll say right next to your name, born this day, died this day. And in between those dates, there's a dash. That dash is you. It's everything you ever did, everyone you ever touched. It's the time you spent here impacting yourself, your own life and the lives of others. Make the most of it so when it's 20 years ago, you don't regret it. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Through this old town Oh, how the memories start to flow And there's the old movie house They finally closed it down You could find me there Every Friday night Twenty years ago I work the counter at the drugstore down the street But nobody's left there I would know On Saturday mornings that's where all my friends would be You'd be surprised what a dime would buy 
Thank you. 